So let's open our Bibles now to uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1. It's been a while since we've been in Revelation. This is a, a wonderful book, uh, a book written by the Lord, given to John. And when we look at this, we can see that it was uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's an unveiling of who He is. And not only of who He is, but it's also an unveiling of His thoughts. His thoughts and certainly the things going forward in the future. So it's not just a book about foretelling things coming in the future, although it is that. It's a, it's a book about Him. It's a book about His unveiling and His thoughts and His mind and His the things that He's thinking. And, and, he, and these things are written for us for our admonition and for our nurture. And I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me because many people right now are really in a strait and really wondering what's going on, and many are fearful. But you and I have the Word of God, and I want to encourage you with that because uh, it's, a, it's a valuable thing that we have always had in this country. Uh, other countries don't have it like that. Some countries like uh, Iran, for instance, and Saudi Arabia, the Bible is banned. You can't even, you're not allowed to have the Bible. Um, and so there are people who don't have it, but we've got it, and we have it in abundance. So I would really encourage you to consider that going forward and really realize the, the, the great blessing it is, not only for us to gather, but also to have the Word of God in our hands. So we look at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The last time we got together was probably about a month ago uh, when we were in Revelation, and we covered the first eight verses. And so I don't know that I will um, go over those again, but let's pick up in verse 9. And what I'd like to do is just read verse 9 through the end of the chapter, and then we will go back and take a look at it, okay? So Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Uh, John says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace." and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun in its strength. And when I saw him, notice what he says, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. 
Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or messengers or pastors of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And so as we look at this, we see a wonderful description of Jesus Christ in His glorified state. And in the Scripture, we see other passages describing Him in, in the very same way with similar attributes. And we'll look at that as we get going, as we get going here. But let's go back to verse 9. Uh, uh, look, look what John says. He says, John, he says, Both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. What I'd like for you to notice first is that John is including himself in this. He says, John, your brother and companion. You know, John, because he was an apostle, you know, he could have uh, given himself or, or talked about himself with the many titles that he had. Certainly he was a disciple. He was an apostle. He was the, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And notice that John never really used these kinds of lofty titles to describe himself, but rather he said, I'm your brother and I'm your fellow companion. Because remember, John was undergoing a great, uh, a great persecution uh, as well as the others in uh, the church at that time in the first century under the dominion of Domitian. Remember, he was the Roman emperor at that time, and he was a very ruthless, very perverse king. Many of these, king, or these emperors were not only homosexuals, but they were pedophiles, and they were, um, they were, they were horrible men, horrible men, and they persecuted the church. And so John here is saying, I am your fellow brother and companion, and what great comfort that must be for those people that he was writing this letter to in the first century. And so no fancy titles about himself, you know, and it, the church includes John. And so they were going through the same things that uh, John was going through as well. But notice that for us, the context in which we live right now, the church as it was going through persecution, and certainly John was too. Remember, John was uh, in Ephesus, and we believe he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John while there, and then Domitian had him, uh, tradition has, uh, has it that they tried to boil John in oil, but because they couldn't kill him for some reason, it just didn't do the job. So instead of doing some other method uh, to kill John as an old man at this time, uh, Domitian had him sent out to the Isle of Patmos, which is about 24 miles off the coast of Ephesus and Asia Minor in the Aegean Sea. And it's really just a rocky piece of ground out there. And it's a mining colony where they sent him out there for his punishment. And, and he was just to mine out there uh, rocks and stuff like that. And that's where the Lord uh, Jesus Christ gave him this a revelation of Jesus Christ that we have before us. And it's interesting that after Domitian died uh, in, in 95 or 96 AD, that the very next Roman emperor, who was Nerva, that was his name, he released John from the island and, and John went back to Ephesus and just died of natural causes. He was the only disciple that didn't die a violent death. But anyway, so notice, he says, I, John, your brother and your companion in tribulation and kingdom, 
and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island uh, called Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice the first thing in here. You could almost break this phrase up into three different things. Uh, the first thing is, is he's your brother and companion in the tribulation of Jesus Christ. You know, one thing we have to remember as we read the Bible, especially this book, and especially as we get into what we call the Great Tribulation, which is a period of time that the church will not go through. It's a period of time that God is going to pour out His wrath upon an unbelieving world that has rejected His only means of salvation, and that was Jesus Christ. And so they've rejected Him, and so God is going to pour out His wrath on the world at that time. But prior to that wrath, the church has to be removed. So from your perspective, looking at me, the church has to be removed, and then the tribulation ensues, and that's where the wrath of God is poured out. And the book of Revelation speaks to that, and we'll get to those chapters in the coming weeks. But notice, so, but as, as children of God, we do suffer persecution. We won't go through the great tribulation, but we will suffer tribulation and right now, we're kind of going through that right now, aren't we? We're going through a tribulation of sorts, you know. Um, but it's not the same as what John went through because we're not being persecuted like John was. We're just going through a, a, a tribulation, meaning, please hear me, I'm not saying that we're going through the great tribulation. We're just going through a tribulation by this virus and the things that are going out. But the thing we have to remember is that Jesus, however, he suffered greatly by the hands of those whom he loved and died for. You know, and in, in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, it's one of my favorite verses, and I think it's one that we really have to hold on to. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's something to remember, because we will go through tribulation at times, and we're going through one right now. This is not easy for anyone, but... Uh, but God has not appointed us to go through His wrath. When His wrath is poured out, that is called the Great Tribulation, and that is something that's spoken of in the Bible, and the church will not be here for that. That's very important. And so, and although trials and tribulations, they do produce in us patience, there are some who believe that the church has to go through the Great Tribulation in order for us to be sanctified or purified so that God can receive us, but that is not the truth at all. Although trials and tribulations, they do purify us, don't they? They do wake us up, they cause us to think soberly, but we don't have to be purified by trials and tribulations to be right with God or to be accepted by Him. We know that there is only one way that we can be accepted, and that's by faith in Christ for the blood that He shed on the cross for us there is nothing else that purifies us like the blood of Christ. And there's no fire anywhere that can purify and purge us like the blood of Jesus can. So that's really important that we understand that. In fact, turn with me in Romans uh, chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, because you need your Bible. In Romans chapter 8, I want to share with you something that's very encouraging and also uh, applicable to what we're talking about as... John is telling us that we, we, he is our fellow uh, companion and brother in tribulation of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Let me read it. Paul says to the Romans, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And there is no one, not even the devil. The devil can try to bring his, his accusations against you because he's a slanderer and a liar. But don't you believe it? And God certainly doesn't believe it. And even if it's true, if you're a child of God, you're under the blood. But notice what he says. He says, who is he who condemns? Verse 34, it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I'm so glad that God, that Jesus is interceding for you and I right now. And he is, believe me, right now he understands what you're going through, all the families of the earth, what they're going through. And this has a, a, a there's a terminus to this thing. The uh, unfortunate thing is we don't know when that is. It may be two weeks, it may be a couple months, it may be one month, we really don't know. But notice, here's the encouragement in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall what we're going through right now, is that going to separate us from the love of Christ? No, it is not. We are loved by an awesome Creator God who loved and died for us and who's interceding for us right now. So this little tribulation that we're going through right now is not going to separate us. You may feel that He's separated from you because perhaps you're embroiled in fear. And I want to caution you against that. Allow the Lord to encompass you and get on your knees and pray and ask Him, seek Him, and say, Lord, remove any fear from me. And you know what? If you're watching the news and that's your diet, you're going to be frazzled. But I would encourage you to put away all that stuff. Maybe once a day, check your, your news. But after that, put it away and spend time outside. Get into the Word of God. Pray. That's the best thing for you. Anything else is just going to cause you to be angst, full of angst, and your peace is just going to go out the window, right? And He is the Prince of Peace. And if you're with Him, you're going to have peace. But if you're listening to Fox News, if you're listening to Drudge Report or CNN, God help you, um, you're going to be frazzled. But notice, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for, we, for your sake we are killed all the day long, and we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Notice, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and who loves us. And notice what he says in verse 38. This is so important. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Remember that. Be encouraged, folks, because the Lord loves us. And aren't you glad that you're loved? Let me read to you also something in John. You might just want to chat down this verse, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to read it to you. It says, Jesus speaking in John chapter 16, verse 32, He says, Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, now has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. And these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Take note of that. That in me, Jesus said, you may have peace. In the world, notice, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? Because it's important that you... Take everything that we read in the Word of God, 
put it in the bank. It's as sure, it's even more sure than the bank because in the 1930s there was a run on the bank and the money wasn't there. So this is even more sure than anything you could put in the bank. This is more sure than anything that you have. Rest your soul and your entire life upon the Word of God. You can do that and there's nothing wrong with that. This word tribulation literally means anguish or pressure or distress or being in a strait. Jesus said those things are going to happen. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer those things. You're going to go through tribulations and even persecutions. But what we're going through right now is not a persecution. It's a tribulation. It's just a small little blip on the screen. And imagine what it's going to be like when the church is removed and all hell breaks loose on the earth during the great tribulation. All these things are going to be compounded upon one another and people are going to be losing their minds. It's going to be exponentially much, 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 much worse than anything we're seeing right now. Go to Wegmans at 7 o'clock in the morning and see the pandemonium. And, and imagine in the tribulation, that's going to be there and it's going to be even worse. And people are going to be fighting with guns and knives over supplies. And folks, aren't you glad you're not going to be here for that? And that is the thing, that's the reason why we are encouraged to share with people because you don't want your family, you don't want a friend, you don't want a, uh, a companion, anybody that you know to go through that. You don't even want your worst enemy, if you have a worst enemy, to go through something like that. So the early church was going through this tribulation for sure. Uh, not the great tribulation, but they were going through tribulation. But we are not going through or persecution, but certainly tribulation. So notice he also says, in the, I'm your brother and, and companion in, in tribulation and kingdom. And see, if you're a child of God, and hopefully you know this, if you're a child of God and you're born again, you are part of the kingdom of Christ. There is no other way to be a part of it from the shed, apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You can't buy it. You can't sign up for it. It is something that you are born into. It's something you're born into. I remember some people... Uh, having a lady come up to me one time, she came to the church and she said, I'd like to become a member of the church. And she says, what do I have to do? Do I have to sign something? Do I have to show my W-2? And I looked at her and I'm like, your W-2? And she goes, yeah. Uh, in some churches you have to show your W-2 so that you know how much to tithe. And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, I said, we're not about that at all. I said, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what? You're part of the church. And if you stay here, praise the Lord. If you go somewhere else, guess what? You're still part of the church. And so, um, but you can't buy it. You can't buy getting into the church. You're born into it. You're born into it as a child of God. Verse 9 also says, I'm your brother and companion in the patience of Jesus Christ. The word patience speaks of endurance and continuing and being steadfast even through the greatest trials and sufferings. It's fortitude is really what it is. And, and that's something that we're going through right now. We need that fortitude, that, that endurance, that peace to go forward in, the, in spite of these difficulties in our life. And notice what he says. He goes on in verse 9 and he says, John says, I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and secondly for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John he was being persecuted, as we said before, the things that happened to him, because of his faithfulness to Jesus. His faithfulness to Jesus, that's why he was there. And for sharing the testimony, the things that Jesus spoke while he was yet alive on the earth, 
those things that were being spoken and those things that John was sharing with the church at that time, that's why he was on the island of Patmos. And so he was being persecuted in the, in the strongest sense. And so there he is on the Isle of Patmos. And you know, there, are, there may be a time, and perhaps you already have had persecutions in your life as a believer. Notice persecutions to differentiate it from tribulation. You may be persecuted. Maybe you've been persecuted. Maybe you're going through persecution right now. Maybe you're being passed up for a promotion even though you work harder than anybody else. You know, maybe you get a pathetic smile or grin from those who you try to share with. That's a very light persecution, but it is nonetheless. You know, I've gotten a look. I have these shirts that Steve Spazano has given to me, and they have, like, Jesus is God on them, and, or Jesus is alive, or something along those lines. And um, I always find out who the Christians are in Wegmans because they always come up and they say, Oh, that's a great shirt. I like that. I wish I could wear one like that. And I'm like, Well, you can. You know, and so that, that encourages people. But don't be afraid. That's very minor persecution when I get the snarls from people, when they look at me and they just kind of dismiss me. Or maybe you're being marginalized in your family uh, because of your faith. These are all light persecutions. But notice that John was a prisoner. He wasn't a prisoner of Rome. Even though he was a prisoner of Rome, he was really a prisoner of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul even said that about himself. He said in, um, in Philemon 1 verse 9, he says that he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And I would rather be a prisoner of Jesus, meaning I'm in prison, I'm, in, I'm going through persecution because of my faith in Christ. I'd rather be a prisoner of him than of New York State. I'd rather be a prisoner of Jesus than a prisoner of Rome. In 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 20, you might just want to write that down. Let me read it to you. Peter says, For what glory is it when you are buffeted for your faults? You, you shall take it patiently. But if you, when you do well and you suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. In other words, if you've done something wrong, you deserve, to be, you deserve the punishment. But if you're doing the will of God and serving Him and you're suffering persecution as a result, God is well pleased with this. He's not pleased that you're going through the hardship but he knows that that's just part of it. Jesus was our forerunner. He was the example. He did all those things. And yet, what did the world do to him? They crucified him. The Romans, they are the ones who nailed him on the cross. And the Jews, they cried out for his blood. So everyone was involved in this thing. We were all complicit in his murder on the cross. The Jews and the Gentiles. In 1 Peter 3, verses 14, it says, But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, and that's exactly what John is saying here. He was a, uh, a brother and companion in the, tribu- in, in the suffering, I'm sorry, in the, um, of Christ and in patience. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But he says, If you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify, notice, set apart the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you of a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or your, your good lifestyle in Christ. And that's a wake-up call for us, isn't it? Because one of the things uh, the church is, um, we need to wake up. Uh, the church to- in totality in our country, we need to come alive again. We need to be revived. We need revival in the church. We need to be revived. 
And, and the only way that that can happen sometimes is, is by us getting on our face. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people right now that are starting to, the, the crucible is, is tightening, isn't it? And people are feeling it. And this is not a time for us to, to be locked away. I mean, we have to be locked away in our house for some, you know, reason because of health issues. But you can reach out, call somebody, and talk to people. Talk to your family members. And, and talk to them and say, you know what, everything's going to be okay. This is not the end. But the end is coming, and what are you, how are you going to respond to that? That's, that's a good catalyst to start the conversation. Everything that's happening right now is a good catalyst for the conversation to bring people to Christ. Bring them to Christ. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about their sin. Tell them about His uh, paying the price for that sin and the hope of eternal life, which can only be found in Jesus. Let's go back to verse 10. Notice, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. The Scripture nowhere calls, nowhere in the Scripture does it call Sunday the Lord's day. Okay? The Lord's day and the day of the Lord, they are essentially the same thing. You see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, but nowhere does it say that the Lord's day is Sunday in the Scripture. We may think of it as the Lord's day, the first day of the week, Sunday, but the Bible doesn't call it that. But when it says, when he, when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, John is not saying that it was Sunday when this occurred. In fact, the day of the Lord or the Lord's day is really an extended period of time beginning with God's dealing with Israel and the world after the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation, extending all the way through, to the, through the millennial age and even into uh, and after the millennium, that is called the day of the Lord. And most of it is judgment, but there's also wonderful times of restoration. But that whole period after the rapture and afterward is really considered the Lord's day or the day of the Lord. And so what was happening here is that John was somehow mystically, somehow spiritually taking, taken to, he was like translated in a sense, uh, he was still physically there, but whether in a trance or in a dream or something, he was taken to the time of the end um, that hasn't even occurred yet. He was, put, he was placed in time, in a sense, to view those things and to share them with us because God wanted to make sure that we knew what was coming because it not only settles our heart, doesn't it, but it also gives us the ability to share those things with other people. And now is the time to be sharing, folks, because everyone around us, again, is nervous. And some people, and, he, and, and there's even some post-tribulationists out there who say that we're going through the tribulation right now, the great tribulation. That's nonsense. Uh, because the Bible says the church has to be removed for that. And besides, the Antichrist has not raised his head yet. And um, Jesus hasn't taken us out yet. But no Christian writings, listen to this, no Christian writings a hundred years after Christ ever called Sunday the Lord's Day. So this is not about Sunday. This is the Lord's Day is a time, an extended time in the future that, uh, that commences when the rapture of the church occurs all the way to the end of what we read in the Bible. That is the Lord's Day. And so John was transported there. And notice that he was transported there and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And there would be no mistaking John hearing the voice of Jesus. This, this voice, when you think of a trumpet, it heralds something, doesn't it? And, and it, it's loud and it's very clear. It has a distinction about it. And so this message was very clear to John. And this is encouraging because when the Lord wants to speak to us, He can and will 
and there will be no denying that it is from Him. I've experienced that in my own life. And, 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 and be encouraged, you know, uh, the Lord is able to speak to you. If you're thinking, well, I'm too dull of hearing, well, that may be true, because uh, that's true of my own self at times. But remember that God is able, if you really want His will done in your life and you cry out to Him, He is able to speak to you at any time. He is not limited by anything. And He can speak to you, and you will know it. You will know it. I've had it happen to me, and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was Him, and I acted upon it. And that's as simple as it gets. He is able to break through all of your confusion. He's able to break through all of the clouds that are in your head. He's able to break through even your unbelief at times. If you're feeling like, you know, Lord, I just don't, uh, I just don't feel like I'm really, you know, uh, um, I'm not up to snuff. Um, I'm not walking the way I should. Well, that may be true, but that doesn't hinder Him in being able to speak to you when the time is right. So be encouraged in that. But the sound of a trumpet is a sound of gravity, and it's a sound that causes you to come to attention, isn't it? It's like when Moses, uh, when the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, what preceded that, uh, that talk of, of the giving of the commandments? A long sound of a trumpet. It was a call to attention. And, um, and so we need to pay attention. And just like John, the Lord got his attention. And notice what he says in verse 11. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Notice, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And he lists them, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Notice, he writes to John and tells him, write what you see. And what is the first thing that John sees? It's Jesus. He is the focal point of what we're going to see and, and what we saw. Because um, in verse, um, let's see here. We're going to get to that in verse 12, actually. We're going to find out what he did see because it's coming. But the first thing he does see is he, he, Jesus is the focal point. And we need, again, more than ever to see Jesus now more than ever because hearts are, are getting scared. Hearts are getting faint. Um, and now more than ever, folks, the church, we need to really dig in to the Word of God. We need to really dig in and dig deep and say, Lord, where am I at with you? And sometimes things like what we're going through kind of sift us, don't they? They, they? they help us to understand really where our faith really is. And it's true for all of us. You know, there's no need to be ashamed about anything because some people are frazzled, some people are cool as a cucumber, and uh, everything in between. And so, um, but take stock of where you're at and say, Lord, I want to go deeper with you. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to go into you, right? What does the Bible say? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are what? They're safe. They're safe. The righteous run into it. So let's run into Jesus. And how do you do that? You get into prayer. You get into the Word of God. And you close your eyes and you, you, you meditate on Jesus Christ. Not transcendental meditation. You meditate on His Word. You meditate on Him. You think about Him. You single every, You push everything aside. Please do that in the days coming. You need to do that. I need to do that. Verse 11, he says, So he tells, uh, these are the seven churches. And we know that they're, they're, he's speaking to and we'll get to this in chapters 2 and 3, he's speaking to seven literal churches that existed in the first century at that time, and he lists them there. And the neat thing about these churches is they all 
really demonstrate the different things in the church, all the different uh, uh, emotions and problems and struggles and issues that you'd find in church history uh, from the very beginning of the birth of the church in Jerusalem all the way up to the current time. These seven churches all exemplify all the things that we see today and all the things that we have seen. So they're really representative of the church age. And we can identify ourselves with one of these churches when we get to it. But notice he says, Then I turned to see, verse 12, the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And he defines who these lampstands are in the very last uh, couple of verses, in, in, in verse 20 of, of this chapter. But the, the lampstands are representative of the churches. And notice, he says, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And see, we are to be, when you think of a lampstand, it really holds light, doesn't it? And we are to be the light bearers. We are not the light, but we are to magnify or to be a reflection of the light of Christ. If you think of the moon, this is a really great illustration, at least I think it is. Uh, the sun, what does it do? When we look up at night and we see the moon, the moon is bright because it's reflecting light onto the moon. The sun is reflecting on the moon and the moon is showing its light down to the earth and the moon is like what we are supposed to be. We are to be the ones that are, we're not the light, but we're reflecting the light of Christ onto others. And see, that's where we are supposed to be. In Philippians, uh, Paul encourages them, he says, he says, be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And see, that's what we are to be. Jesus told his disciples, I am the light of the world. But then he said to them, now you are the light of the world. You go and you share those things. And in fact, in Matthew 5, he says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they take a light and a light, uh, or do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand. And why? So that it gives light to all who are those, all who are in the house. And here's the, 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 the exhortation to us Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And what are they going to do? Are they going to glorify you? No, they're going to glorify your Father which is in heaven. So we are to be that light. So the lamp stands that just speaks of the church. And who's in the midst of it? Notice verse 13. And in the midst of the seven lamp stands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. That's none other than Jesus Christ. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 13, it says, in that passage, it says, I was watching, Daniel said, in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So this is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And when it speaks of his uh, robe, it speaks of, uh, of dignity and honor like you would see in a king. So Jesus here is acting as a priest uh, um, he, as he intercedes for us, as he said he would do. He, he acts on uh, behalf as a priest. And certainly he himself was our sacrifice. And so he was the, the Passover lamb as he gave himself on the cross. So he was, uh, in a sense, the... Um, he was the payment for our sin. He was the priest. Uh, the Bible says in Hebrews that he's our high priest. And he's also the Son of Man. 
I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 6. It's in the very first verse. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and what? And the train of His robe filled the temple. And here is the, the, a vision of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, filling the, 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 the throne room with his, with his robe. What an amazing picture it is, right? And then finally in verse 14, we get into it and he says, Notice his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Flame of fire. You know, in Proverbs 16, verse 31, it says, The silver, the silver-haired man, or I'm sorry, the silver-headed man, actually, I, I, I got to start that over again. The silver-haired head is a crown of glory, and it is found in the way of righteousness. And white hair, obviously, it speaks of fatherhood. It speaks of dignity. It speaks of wisdom that Jesus obviously is full of. And his eyes, as a flame of fire, it speaks of purity. I mean, think of this. Uh, many of you guys have, if you're on the, on, the, um, on the work site and you have at night, maybe you have these one million candle power lights that you plug up to your car or you hook up to a generator, and it's like a million candle power. And, and you think about the, 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 the gaze of Christ. His, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and it speaks of purity. Isn't that wonderful? I don't know about you, but I look around in the world, and I see just the, the debauchery, the sin. I look within my own heart, and I can see such darkness at times. And I'm like, Lord, like Paul, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Jesus does. He has, and He will, and He'll continue, right? But His his eyes are a flame of fire. It speaks of purity. It speaks of his omniscience. He can see through all of the, all of the, the smoke and mirrors. He can see right through Washington. He can see right through the politicians and the things that they do and why they're doing it. The motivations of all these things are known. That's why he knows all things. That's a scary thing for an unbeliever. But for a believer, that encourages my heart to know that he is uh, taking care of things. In other passages, we see in Matthew 17, uh, we see uh, Jesus' appearance too on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, it says that He was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And notice His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became as white as the light. And so we see a consistency here in that. And also in Revelation, um, just write the reference down, but at the end of Revelation, in Revelation 19 specifically, uh, it speaks of, in verse 12, it says, Jesus, His eyes were like a flame of fire. When He comes back with all of us at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, what does it say? It says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on His head were many crowns. And He had a name written that no one knew except for Himself, and He was clothed with a robe, again, but dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. Word of God. In verse 15 it says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. And this sword is not just a small little dagger that they would use uh, in the Romans, these small little close combat things. No, this is a, a sword like you see on Lord of the Rings when uh, Gandalf or, um, uh, who, what's his name? The, uh, the king. Aragorn. When he holds up, that, holds up that sword, that's a killing sword. That's the sword that goes out of his mouth. It's a it's something, it's the Word of God is like a double-edged sword, right? Able to discern our thoughts and, and, and dividing between the bone and the marrow and the thoughts and the intents of our heart, right? And also in verse 16 of 19, it says, And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I don't know about you, but when that day comes, 
Oh my. Think of the, all of us coming behind him to the earth and think of the tears in our eyes as we see the summation of, again, you know, being raptured and being up with him is going to be a joyous, tearful moment full of joy. And certainly when we come back to the earth, he's coming back as a judge, not as a, a meek and uh, gentle lion or a lamb to, to die for people. No, he already, he's already done that, but he's coming back as a lion and he's going to exact vengeance upon all of his enemies. But we see the same kind of things in, um, in Daniel, in chapter 7. I watched all the, till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated, and his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. So we see a lot of these descriptions of Jesus, and it's important to see those because you see a consistency throughout the Bible because if the Bible is what it says, the Word of God, there ought to be a cohesion uh, of those things, and we certainly find that. So Jesus, the way He was arrayed, the way He presented Himself, He was arrayed as not, not only our priest, but also as judge. And that's who He is coming back. But notice in verse 16, He had in His right hand seven stars, and out of His mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. We already talked about that. And the seven stars, He's going to tell us in chapter 20, the seven stars are actually the pastors or the messengers of those seven churches. Literal, physical churches in Asia Minor that we have written there for us. So he says, I've got those in my hand. You know, and so he says, he had, he had in his right hand, excuse me, in my right hand, uh, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun in its strength. Remember when Saul was taken, was fell to the ground on the road to Damascus, the intensity of Jesus' countenance blinded him for three days. And, and, and he was completely undone completely undone. So this awesome sight demands reverence, doesn't it? You know, to be in the presence of one, it just undoes a person. And there are several places in the in the scripture, and I'll just give them to you really quick. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 9, you know, Daniel is before the Lord and he saw a great vision and there was no strength left in him. Even one of God's angels appearing Oh, it could have been a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus. We don't really know. But either way, any visitor from heaven, whether it's an angel or the Lord Himself, is so bright in His countenance and holiness that we naturally fall flat on our face. It's sort of like an involuntary reaction. When somebody throws a ball at your face, you blink or you put up your hands. But when we see Jesus, and I don't know about you, but this really stokes my heart, is to think that when we see Him for the very first time, it's going to be very natural for us. It's going to be like an, uh, an involuntary reaction for us to fall on our face and just put our hands down in tears and thank Him and glorify Him. Isn't that going to be wonderful? I'm looking forward to that day. Even Isaiah, in chapter 6 that we referred to either uh, earlier, I'm sorry, he said, as, as he saw this uh, vision of, of Jesus filling the temple. He said, Woe is me, verse 5, for I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and, and aren't we all people of unclean lips? The Lord wanting to sanctify. Uh, even still, you know, He wants to sanctify. He wants to set us apart. Isn't that what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, I believe it is? This is the will of God, even your sanctification. And the idea is that God wants to set you apart. Set us apart from the world. Do you want to be set apart? 
even now, regardless of where you're at in your life, regardless of your relationship with Jesus, I want to be set apart every single day of my life. I want my words, my actions, my speech, I want everything about me to be set apart unto Him. Not, and, and, and I want to, I want to be taken from something and I want to be put towards something. I want Him to take me from this filthy life that I had before and He puts us into a new place. And that's where you want to be. And that's why we have to crucify those old members. Wrath and anger. Maybe it's language. Uh, filthy mouth. Maybe you have uh, issues of lust. Maybe you have issues of unforgiveness. Maybe you have issues of pride and anger. All these things, regardless of how old you are, we all have them. Take a look at it today and let the Lord be the one to do that. But he says and I, in verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Notice, that's a very um, right thing to do when being in the presence of God. Or even an angel of the Lord. is to fall on your face as if I'm dead. To fall as if I'm dead. But he laid his right hand on me, notice, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. And I like that too. Because in the very beginning of, of when the earth was created to the very end, he is there. He was there before the beginning. Before the beginning began, He was there. And He's going to be there long after when a new heavens and a new earth are created into eternity. He is the first and the last. I love that. And Isaiah 44 says, There is no other, uh, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And we see the Trinity in there, don't we? Or parts of it in that verse. Isaiah 44, verse 6. And we also see in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12, what does it say? Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. So we see this throughout these titles, even 700 years before Jesus was born in the flesh, that he is the first and the last, and this is the one who is speaking. And notice verse 18, we're getting close to the end here, so bear with me. I know I'm going a little longer which is typically what I do. Uh, <laughs> um, but he says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I also have the keys of Hades and of death. I love this phrase for the simple reason that he starts off with, notice, he doesn't say, I'm the one who was, and I'm the one who is, and I'm the one who will be hereafter. No, he starts with the present because that's where we live. That's where we're at right now. He says, I am he who lives. Right now, I am he who lives with you and with me, and also was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Do you see it? It's the present, and then the, the past, and then the future. And that process, that idea is consistent most of the way through the book of Revelation. He says that I am uh, I'm in the present, I'm, I was also in the past, and I'm also going to be in the future. And I love the fact that he says that he has the keys of Hades or hell, and death itself, thanatos is the word in the Greek. Because we know that even in the, um, after Jesus returns in His second physical coming to the earth, what does it say in Revelation 20? I love this. This is a blow to Satan. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. An angel, just an angel. We don't even know the name of the angel. You know, it wasn't like it was Michael or, or Gabriel. It was just some angel. I mean, the Lord just probably picked someone out. You know, probably the uh, one of the least of the angels. Hey, you over there with your, uh, your, your shirt needs to be zipped up a little bit better there and you need to get a haircut. Hey, you, why don't you go down? And the angel came down from heaven having the key 
Notice, the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And what did he do? He laid hold of that old dragon, that old serpent, which are basically Old Testament uh, uh, titles. Who is the devil and Satan, just in case you don't know who it is. And he bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit and he shut him up until the thousand years were expired. And notice what Jesus says too and at the great white throne judgment. What does it say? It says, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And how can death and Hades, how can hell and, 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 and death be cast into the lake of fire, the final resting place of the wicked? How is that? Because Jesus, notice, has the keys to Hades and of death. He has the keys, so he has the right, he has the authority to lock those things up and to cast them away from us. And finally in verse 19 it says, Write the things which you have seen. Notice, and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Now John has already told us the things that he's seen. He saw Jesus in the midst of the golden candlesticks, lampstands, I'm sorry, they're not candles, they're lampstands because they didn't have candles back then. Uh, they had, they had uh, uh, oil that they burned. But notice, write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after this. This verse is, you might want to put an asterisk by this verse because this is what we call the divine outline. This really gives us the whole entire uh, structure of the book of Revelation. And it's simply this. When he says, write the things which you have seen, he's already done that in chapter 1, right? Verses 9 through uh, 17 or whatever that is there. Um, he's given us that. That's the things that he's seen. And he says, now what? write the things which are. The things which are, are going to, which are the things that are currently uh, going on at the time when he was writing this. And what is that? It was the churches themselves. Revelations chapter 2 and 3, those letters that Jesus dictated to the seven churches, those are the things which are. And notice, and the things which will take place after this. This is really important to know because we know exactly when that time occurs because in chapter 4, if you go to chapter 4 in, uh, in the book of Revelation, notice it's immediately after chapters 2 and 3, which is the things which are. He already are the things which, um, he says, write the things which are, or I'm sorry, with the things which you have seen, which he's already done, write the things which are, which is chapters 2 and 3, and then he says, and then write the things which shall take place after this. The words in there uh, in Greek are metatauta, and that, that's very important because the very next place we see those two words together is in the very first verse of chapter 4. So we know that these are where the divisions in the book lie because in the very first verse of chapter 4 it says, after these things. Literally what it means, after these, is the same phrase, meta tauta. So after these things. So, and so after, you know, and then it says come up here, you know. And so the church here is raptured uh, right at chapter 4. And then from that moment onward are the things which shall be after. Like he says in chapter 1 there in verse 20. 19, sorry. The things which shall take place after this. After this. Meditata. After what things? After the church age. And what happens after at the end of the church age? The church is removed and the church is no longer on the earth. And it even says, after these things, meditata. So we know that everything from there, from chapter 4 to the very end, are the things that he was to write. And so, and then finally in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, 
and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers or the pastors of those seven churches. And notice, and the seven lampstands which you saw, they are the seven churches, right? And so notice how plainly the Lord makes it. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't um, hide things from us. Remember, the book, the book of Revelation, which for ma in many churches, many churches don't teach this book because, granted, there's some things that are dark and, 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 and kind of, um, uh, if you don't have a handle on eschatology and you don't have an understanding of the Old Testament, the Revelation, book of Revelation may be a little daunting for you. But notice, uh, there's a blessing attached to those who hear it and to those who read it. So whether you know it or right, not, or right now or not, you are being blessed. I am being blessed because I'm reading it. And guess what? You're hearing it and you're reading it too. So we're receiving a blessing. But many churches don't teach this book because they think it's too hard. It's not too hard. Are there things in it that we don't quite understand? Absolutely. But notice, as we finish up here, how plainly the Lord makes it. He defines what these things are. You know, um, some people just give up and say, I don't know what these seven stars are. I don't know what these lamps are. Well, he tells us right there in the text, doesn't he? The seven stars are the angels of, or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. He, he defines it for us. We don't have to go digging and find out what it means. And see, that's, remember, it's a book of unveiling. It's not a book of hiding things. And so that's how we're going to end today, is just to remember the book of Revelation is an unveiling it's an unveiling of Jesus. It's an unveiling of His plan of, of what He's going to do throughout the church age, which we're still in the middle of right now, and even after those things, Meta Tauta, chapter 4 and onward, that's what we're seeing. And it's, it's, a, it's a revelation of His plan in addition to a revelation of Himself. And so, praise the Lord. We are going to stop right there, but why don't we just take a moment and pray. Father, we thank You. Lord, for your word, Lord. I don't know, even as I read this uh, today, Father, in front of your people, Lord, I'm so excited. Lord, I'm so encouraged. I'm so uh, liberated in a sense to, and, and free, Lord. I just feel a sense of freedom, Lord, as even as I read your word, Lord, and I pray that you do the same for my brothers and sisters. Encourage them today, Lord. Keep them in your safekeeping. Lord, keep them. Bless them. And, uh, Lord, we pray for your hand to be upon us, Lord, that uh, as we read Psalm 91, Lord, uh, today, I would encourage you to read Psalm 91. It talks about the pestilence that, that walks in darkness, and we can't see it, but it's around us. And, Lord, keep us from those things. Help us to, um, to trust in your promise, Lord, and help us to be careful, Lord, too, to do our part. But we pray you protect us from all this stuff. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.